This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Do you want me to start? Um, no, I'll start. No, no, I think I would quite like to start on no, this occasion. I'll start. You started no, I, the last I time. I want to push the button. It's not fair. You know, oh. I'm much better at pushing the button than you. Sort it out. Sort it out. Okay. Oh, so you're my replacement, eh? A dandy and a clown. Oh, okay, look, you better let him talk. I've always had the greatest respect for what he has to say. Mm. Hello, yes, I'm back. Back from a beautiful beach, not dissimilar to Chroma. I'm back here in the DWP camper van with my good friends James and Tom. Hello, guys. Hello, Trev. Hello, Tom. Hello. Look, we'll, we'll clean it up as soon as we're done here. I promise. I'm sorry about the mess. <laughs> this, this is actually tidy. This is this is very very tidy. <laughs> well, we had Laura here. God, that was great fun. Yes. Yes. Look at that stuff on the walls, though. Did you ever figure out what that was? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't restocked the cabinet. I tell you, I'm away for a couple of weeks and suddenly the cabinet is bare. What am I supposed to drink? No, the cabinet is still bare from when you and Tom went off on your holidays together. I mean, <laughs> I just haven't bothered to fill it up again with more bottled water. Yeah, well. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just have to sit here over beside the china hutch and uh, cope. Well, <laughs> Trev, did you have a good Christmas and New Year? I did, I did. For, uh, for any of our Australian listeners or even UK listeners that might read the Australian news, uh, north of Queensland was uh, a bit deluged by rain lately and uh, it's still affecting some of my northern cousins at the moment. So uh, it was a bit of a soggy Christmas, but a good one nonetheless. Oh, that's, that's good. I mean, we in this country, of course, have to try and put the brave face on all of the nasty winds, the snow and everything. And we say that we're used to it. And uh, of course, when you hear that people are going to Australia for Christmas on the beach in the sun and then... One of your friends says, oh, it's been raining. We haven't been able to go out. Oh, it just gives me that warm, toasty feeling yeah. inside. So <laughs> it's good to know that you've had it as bad as we have. <laughs> oh, I, I just feel so welcome and warm here in the camper van, guys. Thank you very much. Rocking, rocking, rocking. <laughs> but I must say, what while I was up in, in the wilds of uh, North Queensland, I listened to your fantastic review of The Christmas Carol, guys. Really, really, really good. Oh. Um, I was I was having that awful thing I do when I'm not part of a show and I sit there and I start talking thinking you're going to answer me but realising that it's a recording. And one of the great things about listening to you guys was every question I had, you, you pretty much answered. A really, really well-balanced and comprehensive review, guys. Fantastic. Oh, okay. Uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, good to hear. What is slightly concerning is when we do record when you're not there, Trev, after we've finished and I'm going to bed and yeah, you're trying to you know, wind down, you turn the logic circuits off, I could just hear all of those answers and all of the comments that we just knew that you were going to say, <laughs> just buzzing around. <laughs> so you never know, we might have actually um, heard precisely what it was that you were saying to us afterwards. <laughs> in, I'm in your dreams, James. I'm you in are. your dreams. <laughs> it's slightly scary. We did consider having a competition for our listeners to try and guess what you actually thought of A Christmas Carol. So, uh, and I wish we'd gone there now, that would have been quite funny. Okay. Well, I think they have to wait no more because this episode I get a chance. It's it's me time. It's me time. Rock and roll. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Well, I don't really have much to add to what you guys said. <laughs> Let's move on, eh? Thank you very much indeed for tuning in to episode 57 of the Doctor Who podcast. We'll be back da, next time. Da, 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 da. No, no, no. I... Are you saying you agree with Tom and I completely? 
I pretty much, but uh, it's a weird little beast, this little uh, Christmas special we got this year, because in one respect, there are things that you could criticise it for, but due to what sort of episode it was, it would be quite churlish to do so, I think. Um, what Stephen Moffat has given us this Christmas is quite a unique Christmas special, oh. one that would never, ever in a million years work as part of a normal Doctor Who season. I mean, if, if you stripped out the Christmas elements of it and tried to put it in season five, for example, mm. I think it would be um, a, an episode that would be ripped to shreds. But I think due to the nature of it and the, I suppose the universe they were trying to set up in this story, um, you can really look at A Christmas Carol separately and go, well, that's, that's wonderful, that's there but don't try and analyse it too much because that's mm. not what it's there for. See, that's what I was going to ask you. Were you able to... Could you actually take it seriously as a piece of Doctor Who or was, or was it like a Doctor Who cartoon? Well, yeah, I, I think that would be pretty close to what I think and that's not a criticism of it, I, I will say. Mm. Again, any other time this was on, if you called it a comic, then I would probably have something really, really bad to say about it. But mm. because it's a Christmas Day special, because it's something just so different we've been presented with this time on Christmas Day that calling it a comic, calling it a confection really isn't that bad because you can just sort of leave it aside and then move on to the real, in inverted commas, Doctor Who. So you're saying that the context in which you watch this particular episode actually affected your enjoyment of it because I I'm, I'm find that amazing. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care what time of year it's on. I mean... Yeah, things like Christmas Invasion and Runaway Bride, you can say it's got the Christmas elements in it because of the time of year. But this one, I mean, I've gone from a position where I was chatting with Tom this time last week saying how good a Christmas special it was. And I've seen it again since. I'd only seen it the once when I chatted to Tom to start with. And I now think this is probably the best Matt Smith episode. And... (laughs) I don't care whether it's Christmas or not. I would have lapped this kind of episode up at any point it was broadcast. So I'm interested mm. to hear why, you know, what would you have thought of this had it not been a Christmas episode? You used that wonderful C word that I, I was going to use, context. Yeah. And I think for me this episode is the ultimate in context as far as I'm concerned because this is probably the first episode of Doctor Who I've watched like a normal person. Um, which which is kind of strange, I suppose, because normally when I watch Doctor Who these days, I'm getting it via other means very quickly so I can yeah. review it for a podcast yeah. or whatever. I'm, I'm watching it at my pace when I want to. Mm-hmm. But due to the fact that uh, it was shown here in Australia on Boxing Day evening, I had to watch it when it was on because I was up in on holiday and I couldn't download it and all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah. It became a very different sort of television, and and I watched it on a really small screen in this little uh, caravan, and it really became a different sort of television. It almost became event television. Oh. Well, thanks I for bringing the caravan it. back, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I was I was watching it in such a unique way for me, anyway. Yeah. That I've I've only now watched it for the first time via a download when I got home yesterday. So. It did change my perceptions about what this whole thing is about that I think it wouldn't have if I'd just been at home and downloaded and watched it and then reviewed it with you guys in episode 56. So you're saying that it was, for you, not only was it a fairly unique episode in terms of style, format, uh, atmosphere even, it it was the way that you consumed it. Definitely, definitely. And like I said before, I think also the story works 
within the context that we're presented it with. If we had a story within season five which had the Doctor going back over someone's time stream, totally changing his life just so he could save a ship full of people, I, I probably would have had real problems with this story. And, and I do have problems with the Doctor being such a master manipulator when you think there would be a much easier way of saving those three or 4,000 souls. But because we're doing this wonderful pastiche of Christmas Carol type fair, then it, it works for me. You know, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I thought when I heard that uh, America and Australia were going to be getting the Christmas special pretty much hard on the heels of the UK was I wondered how differently it would actually affect those regions, given this lovely Christmassy thing to eat at Christmas as opposed to in the middle of the summer. Actually uniting all of the fans around this thing at a decent quality, at a good time, in the place where they should be watching it, with their families, with a little bit too much sugar or a little bit too much alcohol inside them. I'm amazed to hear that it actually made more sense, or at least you were more willing to accept what it was in that environment. I mean, do you think it's important for these things to be scheduled on time and roughly transmitted in the same place? Well, yeah, I, I think one of the ultimate goals in the end really is to get more people watching it on a television rather than on a computer screen mm. and having those very very close to UK transmission dates helps that enormously so yeah just from that standpoint alone I, I think it's really important the less people download it and more people watch it yeah. and with their families even better yeah. um, one thing I want to quickly mention was I, I think we're all used to the fast pace of Doctor Who these days you know um, shotgun dialogue delivery um, <laughs> plots that move along at quite a breakneck speed again because I was watching it in such um, an interesting way on a very small screen it was raining very hard that night um you know the television wasn't that good and the reception broke up occasionally due to the storms wow i found it really really difficult to follow first time round now i'm i'm wondering whether modern doctor who is too fast it it's too quick many of the problems i think i had with the story the first time round were reasonably satisfied when i got the chance to sit down and watch it mm. properly <clears throat> Um, you know, without interruption, without storm clouds bursting over my head, you know, without a horrible picture. <laughs> my parents, or my mother in particular, who who was quite forgiving of a lot of television, came away from this saying, oh, she didn't really like it very much. Now, for my mother to say she didn't like Doctor Who, that's something pretty amazing, I think. And oh. I'm wondering whether it's because Doctor Who seems to be made now f to be consumed over and over and over for people to go back and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and pick up all this little minutiae. Now, mm. that was one of the major criticisms of the Sylvester McCoy era. Mm. And we know where that ended up with <laughs> only Doctor Who being watched by the fans rather than the general public. Interesting. I think there's about four different issues there. But to, to start with your last point, I think Series 5 was most certainly made for rewatching. And I think several of our fellow podcasters have described it as, you know, being made for the box set of DVDs or Blu-rays or, or whatever media, because you go back and you watch it and uh, you, you appreciate different things each time you see it. And I think that's true. I don't believe Sylvester McCoy's era was ever made for the VHS um, 
market, if you like, at the time. I think that was just Doctor Who fans producing Doctor Who for other Doctor Who fans, um, almost to the exclusion of anyone else. And that's something you most certainly cannot accuse Stephen Moffat of doing. Mm. Uh, interesting point about your, your about pacing. And, and, and certainly, if you listen to other podcasts as well, they actually talk and dedicate whole shows as to how Doctor Who is produced these days. And, you know, that's the speed of the scenes. Sometimes it's the speed of the direction, the way the camera cuts uh, between different characters. Sometimes it doesn't even focus on the characters who are speaking within a particular scene because it's much more important that you appreciate the reaction of the characters they're talking to. Um, and I think Rose, the very first episode in 2005, absolutely exemplified that because it was it left me feeling giddy. You know, yeah. you, if, if you're a classic <coughs> Who fan, and even if you look at one of the more faster-paced episodes of cl the classic era, you know, you you are still going to be left reeling um, after watching Rose. It's uh, it, it was no kind of preparation to watching a, a Doctor Who pace that quickly. What I think has happened since then is that the pacing has been utterly, utterly mixed up. One of the major criticisms of the two-part Solarian story in season five was that it wasn't paced fast enough. And what I think Doctor Who is, is big enough for these days is a blend. And this particular story, for me, it actually blended it you know, between the very fast-paced cut, intercut scenes with very slow, emotive, um, very beautiful uh, looking scenes and it was just just kind of hit all the right buttons for me and uh, I, I I just think perhaps the way you're describing your viewing experience if you like I mean I've actually got a little picture inside my head now of Trev sitting in a dingy caravan I don't know I'm sure it was very lovely but in my, <laughs> in my head it's dingy it suits my scene a little bit better and my point as well um, in a dingy caravan with a lights flicking and a small little TV screen watching a program that is set predominantly in a world that is populated by clouds and water and fish uh, it looks very drab you've got the thunderbolts outside the caravan it's rocking you know you've got well I'm, I'm now embellishing your holiday in my mind incredibly but I've, I've, I've kind of now got a vision of Trev stuck inside a caravan in the same way the Tenth Doctor was stuck inside that transit in midnight you know it's uh, some kind of horror situation um, and I think that probably didn't help you or for you know to address your other point uh, your parents perhaps appreciation of what was quite a different Doctor Who episode. Mm, uh, it's it's interesting because I, I was very aware that my opinion was going to be very coloured by that first initial viewing because there were so many things in there that I watched the first time and oh my goodness what the heck am I watching? <laughs> What what parts? What parts, Trev? Yeah, man. What? <laughs> Surely, I I wasn't the first person to think of the phrase "jumping the shark." I mean, I <laughs> I was just sitting back there, laying back there, watching first the Doctor and then uh, Sardak ride this shark uh, above this unnamed planet. I went, oh my goodness, what the heck am I watching? But then it made a little bit more sense the second time round. I'm I'm still not particularly 100% convinced by it. But <laughs> Do you know what it reminded it's, me of? It's there nonetheless. It reminded me of the David Tennant idents for the end of Time Part 1 and Part 2, mm. where he was riding a TARDIS led by a reindeer. But, uh, mm. but I know what you mean, Trev. They did kind of feel... I mean, if, if any part of this particular episode felt cartoony or geared towards kids then those were the scenes, I think. But as I said, I'm normally the most critical 
uh, reviewer yeah. of those particular scenes and the silliness, if you like. It didn't even make me cringe. It just made me smile. Do, do you not, get, do you not it, get the feeling that... Well, put it this way. The first time I watched this, I'd, I'd, uh, I, I, was, I was a bit whacked. Um, but the second time, I, I paid full attention. And what I noticed was that the whole thing has led up to the single moment at the end of The Ghost of Christmas Future being Sardik himself being revealed to his younger self and it all it all seemed to be constructed around that one moment which absolutely hit like a blow it's a wonderful thing but as I said last time if they'd have cut to that scene right from the outset then the doctor wouldn't have needed to go back and revisit Sardak's life in intricate detail he could have just showed him how horrific a character he was going to turn out like and of course at that point the small Kazran mm wasn't aware of what was to come. So he was viewing that scene in a completely different way to the way that the audience was viewing that scene. I can't believe I'm going to say this. What about what about if it's like an experiential feedback loop where it's about, it's about showing the child what he becomes and the old man sees what the child saw all those years ago and is utterly horrified? Right, Tom, go away. Trev, let's just talk on a different level. <laughs> like three up above that. <laughs> For, for me, it all comes back to that there are so many things in this that I could criticise, but because it's the way it's presented, like I could sit there and go, the Doctor's gone through such a convoluted way of saving this ship full of people by spending an hour or however long he takes going backwards and forwards through time. He changes this guy's life permanently. And it, it's just so strange to me. It, it was a incredible difference between all, almost the laid-back way the Doctor was approaching this story and the way Amy and Rory and the crew were up on the ship because it was all fast-paced. Oh, my God, we're going to crash quick. You need to do something now. Oh, okay, I'll spend the next hour just casually strolling through uh, Kazran's life and, uh, you know, change him for the better. Oh, but that's just the Time Lord's perspective on reality, surely. You know, urgency is something different when you've got time and space as your plaything. And now that the Time Lords have gone and they don't enforce these kind of rules, I mean, that was established all the way back in Father's Day, if you remember, when Rose went back to visit her her father dying. Um, You know, the, the Doctor is basically... He's toned down his stance from Waters of Mars, but he basically does what he likes now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ab- ab- absolutely. That that all works for me. Um, but again, I think it's, if this had been part of a normal season, it wouldn't have. Because he does that one throwaway line about uh, w- when he's talking to Amy, oh, why don't you just you know save the ship? And he says something very quick like, I can't lock on. Now, that's yeah. the whole reason then for this episode's existence. He, he can't use the TARDIS like he has in the past, to tow planets. Yeah. No, he, he can't lock onto this small ship. Um, so that's the whole reason this hour-long episode exists now. He has to go back and use the TARDIS in another incredibly pinpoint accurate way to <laughs> yes. change this guy's life. But again, because it's a Christmas carol, we, or I, accept the conceit. I accept what they're trying to do. <laughs> I must ask you one thing that our listeners have been emailing in about, Trev, as well, and I'm very keen to hear your opinion on this, and from talking to Tom as well, I know that he is too. Blinovich, was it, were his theories just, you know, a bit rubbish or, or what? No, no, because if there's one thing I walked away from that first rain sodden screening with, it was, oh my God, don't touch him, don't touch him, don't touch him! <laughs> because I... <laughs> Mordred Undead just flashed through my head as they were down in that uh, basement crypt area 
And that was one of the first things I went online straight after to see what the fans were talking about it because <laughs> I was looking for a way for it to still apply but have a new spin on it. And I think the fans have come up with a lot of interesting explanations and theories as to why yes. the limited limitation effect can still work mm. but it just didn't work in this story you know all the stuff about yeah. you know you know the doctors change Kazran so much now that he's not the same person yes. um yeah all sorts of stuff like that that's the one i'm liking yeah it's the best yeah, one i've got I, too but i mean in all honesty this is one particular area that i just don't care about <laughs> which sounds terrible <laughs> doesn't it sound terrible i mean you you think of the 507 conversation that we had and uh, <laughs> yes and a fairly unique way that we recall things, just like on the end of one of our podcasts. Um, you know, we, we were all getting fairly worked up and enthused about that. And I don't know about the two of you, but I just can't get excited about this. You know, oh, Linovich works sometimes. I know, I know, I feel quite ashamed. It's bad, isn't James, it? James, um, I'm going to have to ask you to hand in your I Love Canon hat, please. Oh, I, I don't think I ever had one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I had one that said Trev loves Canon, but only if it's on screen. Cool. <laughs> Canon hat. <laughs> yes, a Canon hat. <laughs> probably, yes. probably safer than a Stetson, but <laughs> I, I, I just don't understand why this matters. I mean, it works sometimes. It was in Father's Day where it was ignored. It was in The Big Bang where it was ignored. Then we had the Sonic Screwdriver, a game where it wasn't ignored. And I just don't think Stephen Moffat's going to be bothered about something like Blinovich getting in the way of a good story. And I, for one, am completely with him on it. I just can't really care. Okay. Nah, well, I mean, we we will not get into that now because we could be here till <laughs> next Christmas talking about it. But I, I I think canon's important not because it needs to be slavishly adhered to, but because it it should be taken into consideration. You know, the backstory of who should be taken into consideration when they're writing these new stories, and it saddens me a bit when a writer who fully knows what that backstory is blatantly ignores it. But he's talking to you. It's, it's like. He's talking to you all the way through this. Um, what is the, what, what are the four words that are being said constantly? Time can be rewritten. We're, we're being told this over and over again. And as much as I agree with you, it's nice to come from uh, a, um, a fixed structure that doesn't change. And, and I, I did wince a bit, and I think we all thought Vlinovich the moment they started touching and so on. But at the same time, we're being told, we, we've been told for the last year and a half, time can be rewritten. And I don't think we've even begun to see the full extent to which that takes place just yet. Yeah, you're referring to the regeneration issue, aren't you? Again, some... I, I think it's bigger than that. <laughs> no, oh, really? Well, I think you're right in the terms that we are leading to something really big mm. and I think time can be rewritten is going to be something that probably will impact the regeneration limit in a serious way this time. Oh, good Lord, yes. Um, I, I think that probably will happen, but it won't necessarily be done in a way that the casual viewers, i.e. the 2005 onwards fans, will have to understand in order to appreciate the story. I think it'll be a case of just saying, oh, I can regenerate... 20 times now or 507 times now it won't go suddenly back into you know a story that was set on Gallifrey where it was established no, so. no. I, I think we've said before that any sort of explanation to increase his regenerations doesn't need to be canon heavy no. but it, it can be done really really quickly and still satisfy the people who have watched since 1976 and also the people who have watched since 2005 so I've, mm. I have no fear that it will be done reasonably well but I'm just hoping it's done 
with a little bit of care, realising that it only takes a small amount to keep everyone happy. Do you, do you know, I think, I think we know exactly how this is going to happen, or at least we can make a pretty accurate prediction about how this is going to happen. You know it involves Amy, you know it involves a lie, and you know it involves River. Absolutely. And you know it's the end of things as we know it. That whole idea of um, silence will fall as well. Um, I do get the feeling that there's, some, that there's some stuff inside this special that will resonate through next season, but it's it, it, it's kind of difficult to say what it is without getting into kooky theory mm. uh, territory. And I don't want to drag you off talking about the special, but yeah, I, I, we, we know River's in the middle of it. I mean, I just, yeah. And I've, I've got the guarantee that River isn't the Doctor, actually. <laughs> I, I think I think we're going to have to have a completely unique special podcast for theories about who River really is because River at the moment is the kitchen dresser, you know, in the TARDIS as well, <laughs> along with everybody else. But, you know, there's been some fantastic theories being discussed over at our, our forum um, and one of the best ones, and the more you think about it, the more this actually makes sense, which is really quite worrying, is that people seem to think that River is Captain Jack and there are quite a lot of facts that support that rather oh, concerning theory. That's working. Well, <laughs> We won't go into detail now, but take a look on over at our forums and follow that particular thread because um, the more I read it, I was thinking, oh, goodness, this does actually add up. So, um, mm. But that can't be right because it was the Rani, surely. <laughs> and the kitchen dresser. <laughs> um, one of the things I did want to mention, you talked about silence, Tom, yeah, just yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Um, now, Catherine Jenkins' song, mm. the one towards the end of the, um, the episode, not the initial one, um, was all about... Silence. Oh yes. Mm. So that that's interesting. I mean, clearly it's done for a reason, and all of these writers don't just drop these things in. Uh, they do think, right, I'm going to do something with that later on. So I'm certain that it will be referred back to uh, when we get round to resolving this rather long story arc about silence. Mm. Well, I'm I'm glad I've had the chance to really talk to you guys about the Christmas special because I I think really at at the end of the day I I enjoyed it I I think Michael Gambon um, was was mm. the most fantastic thing in that I mean I've enjoyed his his performances for years and years and years he he was the easily the best thing in that story he just acted everyone off the floor basically are you are you buying Matt Smith Trev am I buying him yeah. um I I was probably a little bit annoyed with him in this story but again. I wasn't particularly thrilled with him being the master manipulator. In the last episode, you made mention of how Matt Smith or, or the 11th Doctor seems to relate to the children a lot more, much mm. like what Tom Baker was trying to do with his persona and, mm. and his public persona when he did appearances. Mm. Um, but I think they're tackling it in different ways, um, whereas Tom Baker tried to relate to children on mm. their level. Matt Smith is trying to be a child. Um, they're they're doing very very different things to try and pick up that younger demographic, I suppose. Um, and and I can be quite annoyed sometimes with the way Matt Smith doesn't command a room. Again, I, David Tennant for me didn't command a room, but okay. Matt Smith also doesn't command a room for different reasons. And I just sat there watching him when when he came down the chimney and started brushing himself off. Everyone in the room just looked at him and go, "Who the heck's this nutter?" And <laughs> To, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's what I like. Oh about yeah, him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm aching for a doctor like Tom Baker, like uh, John Pertwee, that will walk into a room and make it his. Um, Eccleston. I, I don't nah. think Matt's there yet. He's not there yet. Yeah. But 
it's because he's such a buffoon, because he's really a child. He is like a five-year-old child in a 900-year-old body. <laughs> well, that's interesting, because most people say that he's got, <laughs> you know, he's an old man in a young man's body, and uh, you've just said it the other way around. That's the first time I've heard an argument made for that, yeah, and cool. uh, I, I do see what you mean, and I do know what you mean. He seems much more at ease, this Doctor, with children. Um, and I'm making a distinction here between character and actor mm-hmm. uh, because I know we kind of blended it up a little bit with the Tom Baker analogy. But I, I think, yeah, the 11th Doctor is very, very good with kids. Yeah. And I, I think that's great. And one, the one character we didn't mention last time, Tom, mm. was the child, I think it was it, Elliot? Elliot. In the, yeah, and once again, the, the Silurian two-parter. Oh, yes. That's three major roles mm. that have been performed by child actors since Moffat's taken over the um, the reins. And I think this is a deliberate choice for Stephen Moffat. Oh, yes. he, he, he wants the Doctor to interact with people. I don't know whether or not he can only relate to children. I do, I, I, I do think he's, he's inaccessible. He's hard to get to know if you are an adult. But you look at the way he interacted with... Um, Michael Gambon's character, whose name has once again escaped me. Caswell. Um, it's just one of those names that just drops out of my head the minute it comes in. But he was taken seriously in a relatively short period of time, despite falling down a chimney, rolling on the floor, and acting initially like a buffoon. But that's, you know, there's, you probably both know this because you've both got children that up until about four or five years older, there's no such thing as a magic trick. It's just the way the world works. And so if, if, you know, if, you're, if you're a time lord and you're trying to explain something to a five-year-old, nine-year-old or whatever, or someone who's not quite established the, the laws of physics in their own head just yet, it's, it must be a lot easier to actually relate to them than to someone who's going, but you can't, but that's impossible the whole time. Um, but, you know, but, but I think you know, my, my stance on this is that it, there's, there's two strands to this. One, that there's probably a story element to it. But number two, that it's, st- again, Stephen Moffat talking to the dads, saying, look, if you catch this, if you catch the Doctor when you are six or seven years old, it will affect you when you are 40, um, which seems to be very much the case in some of these stories and the way he interacts with the kids. One of the things Tom and I spoke about, Trev, last time was the different ways that the producers have used contemporary singers, uh, Kylie and Catherine. So what I wanted to know was um, how, how you felt it, uh, it compared. Was, was Kylie a decision made because she was such a good actress, as well as being very popular, in the same way that Catherine Jenkins was clearly chosen because of her exquisite voice that just um, gets better and better every time I hear that song for me? Oh, yeah, d- definitely uh, actresses or singers like Kylie are stunt casting. They're not there because they're exceptionally good. It's they're there because they're exceptionally well known. Um, that's that's the only reason I think she's in Voyage of the Damned. Um, that 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 she's a pretty young thing who's really famous for being on Neighbours and having a quite successful pop career. Um, but when you get people like Catherine Jenkins, I I think she's there because she has a fantastic singing voice and and she's also incredibly beautiful. Um, and I think I heard you guys say that it's it's her first major acting role. It's so, her first acting role of any kind. Oh wow! Of okay, any well, kind. I I would never have noticed that, and and so she's not being cast because she's a well-known celebrity. She's being cast because she's a fantastic singer, and mm. I think that's very different from the reason why Kylie was in Voyage of the Damned. 
Mm. No, it's pretty much more or less what we said as well. I think so. Nice to know you're on the same page there. I think, but no. I, I don't even I don't even like opera particularly, and oh. I, I I just can't stop listening to that song. It's it's rattling around my head days and days after I've seen it. I've only seen the episode twice, and I watched Confidential earlier on um today as well which incidentally is uh, is getting worse and worse i have to say but they 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 did have uh the um the song you know a little feature on how they recorded the song and i find it almost mesmerizing it wasn't just a shark that was almost paralytic you know after hearing that it was it was me too but i I just thought it was brilliant (laughs) brilliant piece of music one of the things i found interesting about the confidential was that murray gold only had 48 hours or, or or thereabouts to write that tune um, mm. Which is quite, which I think demonstrates two things. Number one, this, these guys are incredibly professional because that's what write the song, generate the score, get the arrangement together, get it out to the singer, perfect. But also that he's just a supremely talented man. I mean, how on earth could you generate something? I, I, I do a little bit of music, but that's 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 full on professional stuff. Really, no, really it, quite it was a remarkable piece of music to be done so quickly. I think they had a little bit more time than 48 hours to get the full orchestra recorded and so on. But yeah, it was it was played on the piano mm. and she recorded two days after he'd finished writing, mm. which I think was amazing. I have to say, I think that was probably the most interesting part of the entire hour's worth of Confidential. But uh, f- <laughs> for me, I mean, and you know, it's good as well. I mean, although I'm criticising it for being too bland and boring and, you know, this particular episode to Confidential basically narrated what happened throughout the episode interspersed with you know a few cutscenes and that is something that is new to Confidential and one it says to me Stephen Moffat has closed up shop in terms of what he's actually allowing to to be revealed about the show and uh, and secondly it's that someone is saying we've got to have an hour's confidential when you, they haven't even got 10 minutes worth of material uh, worth putting out that that to me is in is indicative of all the confidentials on during Moffat's era um yeah i mean confidentials used to have stuff in them that was you know confidential but Certainly during the RTD era, you, you tuned in and you were guaranteed to see something quite interesting and something about what was coming up, perhaps. But season five onwards, no. No, I, it's I agree nothing. completely. Yeah. I mean, you, I took a look back a little while ago uh, on one of the confidentials for season one, uh, where Christopher Eccleston was the doctor. And they interviewed Christopher Eccleston, I think, about all 10 episodes wearing exactly the same clothes in the same um, cafe. <laughs> but having said that, they were really good. I think they were only about 25 minutes in length as well uh, when I actually went out. And you got some really interesting stuff. Whereas now, as I said, I think it's just a case of um, a very cheaply produced show giving very little information. And the reason why I said earlier it's a good thing is because, of course, there's a lot more surprises uh, coming out in the episodes. Uh, people aren't willing, really, to talk about you know, how they make the episodes of Doctor Who. And I, I think that's a good thing, generally. Yeah, I'll mm. go with that. Mm. Do you know, one of the things I thought you guys might have picked up on was um, the Doctor being very, very good at piloting the TARDIS in the Christmas special, but looking at the mm. but looking at the trailer for season six, apparently he's got no idea of where he's going or when he's going to get there. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's that's something I kind of alluded to when we talked about the whole reason for the Christmas Carol episode, that mm. he couldn't lock onto a spaceship, but he could do pinpoint multiple movements yeah. of his uh, ship to go backwards and forwards through time. And uh, again, it's just the inconsistency that they that the TARDIS is erratic these days when it needs to be and incredibly accurate when it doesn't need to be. Oh, I like that. That that adds a little bit more to the character of the TARDIS. Do you think about the Unquiet Dead? You got the wrong year and you got the wrong Welsh town. You know, didn't go didn't go back and correct it. And yet as you say, this particular time it can go back to the, exactly the right moment of exactly the right year and the right spatial coordinates. And for me, that's the TARDIS playing with the Doctor a little bit, you see. And I, I just like the way that works. And you call it inconsistency. I think that inconsistency has been fairly consistent. <laughs> so, Trev, the question I'd like to ask you is, would you rate this higher, the same or lower than any of the RTD specials? Um... It's interesting because I, I could rate this in two ways. As just a normal Doctor Who story, um, you know, to be taken with the rest of the oeuvre, hmm. I'd, I'd probably rate it reasonably low because um, I'm, I'm not a fan of the actual mechanics of the story. I'm, I'm not a fan of the Doctor manipulating someone's life, even though he was a nasty person, but that's by the by. I, I don't think we've really ever gone down that road before. But if we take the story in the context that it's been delivered, and, and I think I said this way back at the beginning of the episode, that I would rate it quite highly because it's the way it's presented, it's the day it was broadcast on, it's it's the conditions under, I think, that most people watched it, that it, it came, I suppose, as close to event television for me as anything because I've watched it in such a different way this time. Yeah. So just on its own, um, you know, without having to worry about I suppose, pesky continuity or canon, then I'd probably rate it quite highly because it's wonderfully atmospheric. It's absolutely beautiful, the, the, you know, the way this planet's been realised, both in CGI and, and real, I suppose, um, props and whatever, is is incredibly well done. You know, the, the, the performances were great. Michael Gambon was fantastic. The young Kazran was really good. Both young Kazrans were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, it was a really enjoyable hour of television. So on one hand... A low score, on the other hand, a high score. Oh, and you accuse the Doctor of being inconsistent. There you are. You've got the most (laughs) diplomatic answer you will ever get from Trev there. Yes, I liked it, but yes, it was quite weak. (laughs) It was good. It was bad. That's cool. Well, would you you watch it again? Maybe that's another question. Mm, That's interesting. I'm probably not sure whether it would have a massive amount of rewatch value for me. It probably may do next Christmas, I'd say. Because it's so, it, I think it's really the first Christmas special that has so embraced the day that it's broadcast on. I mean, I, I think it's the first Christmas special to really do that properly. So it's so intertwined with it that I think watching it at Easter might be a bit weird, I think. But I, I think it would certainly get an airing for me in my household this time next year, perhaps. Okay. Aren't Australians used to watching Christmas specials at Easter? Well, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we're we're... Well, actually, well, kind of, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think Australian TV's got a bit smarter these days that yeah. that they will save up Christmas specials for all all the all the various British and US shows to actually be around Christmas, yeah. uh, which 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 is kind of nice. So, um, yeah, y- yes and no. But um, you know, you know, the whole conceit of the of Doctor Who having a Christmas special to start with 
is a bit <laughs> weird anyway because it's not broadcast over Christmas. It, it, there's like a, what, six-month gap between the end of the season and when we get a Christmas special. It's not like US shows which run over Christmas so they can have an episode devoted to that season. Um, so I suppose you just got to accept it. Okay, well, Trev, I have to say it's been really interesting getting your insight and your views on this particular episode. I have to admit, I thought they were going to be much more extreme than they were. I thought you were going to kind of blow a gasket over the Blinovich <laughs> thing, I have to say. Um, so I'm surprised that you're quite, you know, you're as calm as you are about it. And, uh, you know, if, if the biggest criticism is that the Doctor is being quite manipulative, then I think, um, you know, that's that's a debatable point anyway, I think. But I'm I'm... You know, it's really good to hear a different kind of point of view because I think your view is very different to both Tom and mine. And and it's good to get my view out there. I've been dying to talk to you guys for like I'm three sure. or four days now. <laughs> and, and, and I'm here. And I'm back. Well, <laughs> from what it's worth, on our forums, they've also been crying out for your opinion, Trev. So there you are. I, I hope, listeners, I that you're happy with Trev's opinion. Um, by all means, feel free to contact us if you want to disagree with him, which we would strongly encourage you to do. Um, <laughs> feedback at the com. Indeed, several of you have already been sending in your views on what Tom and I said about the episode last time around. And... We were originally going to try and include some of those views within this episode, but of course, you know what it's like when Trev gets talking, the the podcast just gets longer and longer, and so we're going to hold that over until the next podcast. Um, so we're going to have a feedback episode next time around. If you just want to drop us a line anyway to let us know what you thought of the episode, then please feel free to do so. Hooray! Anyway, chaps... <laughs> I think that's Christmas almost over for this year. I think we've strung it out as long as we can. <laughs> have we not? I think so. I think so. Yes. We're <laughs> going to have to start giving some real thought to what we're going to be talking about in January. Any ideas? Um, seasons. Oh, the Archers. The finale of the Archers. That was very good. Okay, yeah. Trev, have you got any ideas what we're going to be talking about in the new year? As long as we don't talk about only fools and horses. You had me totally lost last episode, guys. <laughs> I will have to say that right up front. No only fools and horses, please. I'm shocked you haven't got only fools and horses in Australia. I really am. Given that you have EastEnders, <laughs> Doctor Who, I'm amazed that you haven't got the absolute stalwart of British comedy. That is only fools and horses. <laughs> and which does have several crossovers with Doctor Who. I've just finished off watching The Seeds of Doom today. And uh, seeing John, <laughs> seeing John Chalice. All right, Marlene. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I think we better wrap up, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's been great to have you with us once again. Please make certain that you join us next time when we'll go through all of your thoughts and opinions on a Christmas Carol. That's enough from us. Bye for now. Bye. Take it easy. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>